together in the neighborhood for sure. I'm excited to try something, to try an experiment, just to, to see how we can use this space better. Getting cars off the street is really what the city needs. Let's make New York a pedestrian. We are standing in Little Prince Plaza. It's a new uh, demonstration plaza here in Soho, New York City. And we're going to be testing this out for the next four Saturdays. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. This is episode number 97, and I'm excited to welcome Mike Leiden, co-founder of Street Plans, back onto the podcast for a quick chat about some of the amazing plaza projects and street transformations he and his firm have been involved with over the past 18 months. We also discussed some of the powerful changes he witnessed this past summer while traveling in Bordeaux and Paris. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a brief moment to say that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you so much, folks. I simply couldn't do this without your support. If you too are in a position to make a donation and would be willing to do so, just head over to my website at activetowns.org and navigate to the donation page. It's also important to mention that there are a few other ways that you can really help support my efforts. The first is to simply subscribe to the audio podcast on your preferred listening platform. Next is to subscribe to the Active Towns YouTube channel. Just be sure to click on that bell next to the subscribe button so that you get an alert when I post a new video each week. And finally, please help me to spread the word about the Active Towns Initiative and my content by sharing it with anyone you think might benefit. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for whatever support you're able to provide as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity for all ages and abilities. Okay, let's get rolling with my conversation with Mike Leiden. Hey, Mike, it's so wonderful to have you back on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be back. It's good to see you digitally again. Exactly. One of these days, we're actually going to get together again in person. I feel like we're in a little bit of uh, seeing you Congress withdrawal, because that's usually when I see you in person. I was going to say this has been our longest gap since maybe 2013 or 14, perhaps, yeah, <laughs> in terms exactly. of seeing each other yeah. in real life. So yeah. yeah, we're due for a run. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of which, I was looking back to when our last conversation was, and it was 18 months ago. So uh, to say that the world has changed yet again would be an understatement. What have you been up to in the last 18 months? <laughs> it's a blur, to be honest. We've been extremely busy um, at the firm doing a range of really exciting projects, some of which would have likely happened you know, anyways without the pandemic and some that have very much been in response to that and cities and communities seizing opportunities to create livelier, safer, better streets. And so we've been very engaged with that. And then personally, we've had a, another child. So that's kept me plenty busy at home with a three and a half year old and an eight month old baby, which is super exciting. So we're busy at both ends, my wife and I. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And it, what was interesting too, is that, so we, it was literally 18 months ago. So it was in April when we published the, the podcast the first time. And I, I was amused by some of the things that we were talking about in the sense that at that stage, we still didn't really know 
much about how the virus spread. We were talking a lot about the apprehension of pressing buttons at crosswalks and things of that nature. We didn't know as much about the uh, contagion that the virus could be spread as easily with touch. We now know a little bit more about that. We know that it's primarily a an airborne and respiratory a type of, of virus and pandemic. But it was very interesting, too, to see that even at that early stage, even in April of last year, we were seeing the shift, the paradigm shift over street space. I get the sense that it just got even more, it, it just, kept, that snowball just kept rolling. Talk a little bit about that because you are right at the pointy edge of that movement to, to redefine and recreate what our streets are for. Yeah, you're right. We didn't know how long this is going to last. We didn't know all the details of transmission, but you could see that once the ball started to roll, with cities, not just in the U.S., but around the globe, starting to take different measures to rethink and reallocate space in their streets, that there was going to be a lot of that activity. And I think that's what's really interesting about how ideas and best practices spread is that it's very much these patterns get developed and cities play catch up with each other and everyone thinks through what, how can they allocate resources to respond to a crisis. And that's exactly what many cities did around the globe and have continued to do and it's been interesting to see some which have doubled down on those changes and are investing in those changes. Some are very much keeping things in play, but not necessarily committing to long-term rethinking of streets and public spaces. And then other cities have reverted back in a number of ways to pre-pandemic life. So there's definitely like those three buckets that are out there. And it's been interesting to be in New York because I'd put us somewhere in between the keeping things in place, but not quite yet marshalling the resources to fully seize this moment of, hey, let's take these things we've learned and let's put more intensive resources behind and accelerate them. And I think that's really where I am locally. That's a really big opportunity that will hopefully come into focus when the new mayoral administration here in New York City gets into office on January 1. Yeah. Now, I, I also noted that at that stage in April of 2020, you were helping capture and document a lot of the activities that were out there, like a database. I get the sense that you probably got really busy doing <laughs> work, and, yes. but was that sort of the that process of being able to collect, was that on autopilot? Are people still uh, putting information into that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Yeah, so I started to build a database of all these changes and organized it typologically to what different interventions that cities were doing. And I certainly wasn't the only one who did that. And there was maybe three or four other people that started roughly around the same time uh, keeping track of this. And so I got to the point where I couldn't keep up with it. And I started that in April, or maybe it was actually late March I started that. And then by yeah, middle of June, I just couldn't keep up with the changes and track it. And so wound up very happily giving over the spreadsheet control to um, a couple other folks who were basically stitching all the different databases together to keep track of the changes that were made during that period. And I think what they are actively doing now is analyzing the results of all that work. What has moved on to be permanent? What lessons have we learned? Who's reverted back to pre-pandemic? And so that's, yeah, that's in someone else's hands, but really was happy to contribute. I saw the need for it and thought this was something that is going to be a transformational shift and we need to be able to share those best practices. So I know that many people around the globe were accessing that spreadsheet and well, it's a Google sheet. So you could see who was on it or how many people were using it at the time. And there would be oftentimes hundreds of people on that spreadsheet at the same time through 
mid to late spring of, of 2020. So it was great to be able to contribute that and proud that people have taken that work and continue to, to dive into it. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I think what would be fun to do is for our audience here is to give a little bit of a visual of what it is you've been up to. So <laughs> Clarence with Street Films sent over a link for a recent film that he shot of one of your projects. So I won't introduce it at all. I'm just going to hit play and uh, it's not very long. So we can, I think it's pretty self-evident what this is all about. Uh, we are standing in Little Prince Plaza. It's a new uh, demonstration plaza here in Soho, New York City. And we're going to be testing this out for the next four Saturdays to communicate to folks in the neighborhood that there's a possibility of reclaiming even more space for the public, for walking, for sitting, and for enjoying the beautiful architecture. And we want people to be able to see it, to walk in it, to sit in it, and really understand the long-term goals of uh, the district. What we've heard from people is there's like very few places to, to sit and uh, relax while they're in the neighborhood. We, we have tons of visitors, um, but no public space. They have four different streets that they're focused on, Prince Street being the first. I know that you've heard also, people don't have a lot of places to sit in Soho. So this gives you a place to have a cup of coffee or sit and talk to your friends. But I think more importantly, it says we want open streets. It's a lot, it's a very busy street in general. I come to Soho all the time, so it's nice to like, have a nice public space to just sit down. Yeah, as somebody that's lived in the neighborhood, we need something like this. I'm really looking forward to it being stayed. So we can all enjoy so the streets can... of Soho. Yeah. So come down and enjoy it with us. And wow. spend your money. <laughs> so these are fun. These are cheap and comfy seats that you can move around. So we expect people to be using them over the course of the day, moving them from circle to circle or pulling them up to the tables and the chairs. And I love it, and I love the color palette. Oh, the blue? The, the blue and the yellow. Oh. More streets like this? More <laughs> yeah. streets? Yeah, it's beautiful. So these fun little magnets that are going onto the tables and they are just a survey to share feedback from the public on what they think about these changes. We're getting ready to release a public realm vision plan that will make some other recommendations uh, for the broader uh, Soho Broadway district. We have a lot of buildings and a lot of people that come here so we have to be creative in finding uh, public spaces. So that was fun. It is a lot of fun. It was insane for us to organize the release of this new vision plan that we've been working on for, you know, 10 months with the Soho Broadway initiative and align that with a demonstration project. But the opportunity was there to really showcase what's in the plan and the concepts and bring it to a much, much broader audience. You can only reach so many people through a planning process and particularly during a pandemic, you know, we weren't able to get together with folks in the neighborhood personally. So. It's been really valuable for us as a platform to you know, show, not just tell. And the response has been unbelievably positive as we predicted it would be because to Mark's point in the video, there just isn't space for people in this district. It's really overrun by, by cars, despite it being one of those beautiful places to walk around in New York City. Plazas like that and reusing streets is the opportunity. That is how we're going to enhance the public realm in this part of the city. Yeah, we're very excited about it. So what was really the driving force with this particular project? Well, I think it was certainly the need for it was, or the opportunity for it was accelerated by the pandemic. If you've ever walked those streets in lower Manhattan, you've walked through Soho, particularly along Broadway, which is the main corridor that the bid oversees. It's very uncomfortable, particularly on the weekends, or particularly at, at rush hour. There's a lot of through traffic driving west, trying to get to the Holland Tunnel. And there's a lot of traffic coming from the north down Broadway, also trying to access the tunnel. So between Broom Street 
and Broadway, there's some real serious quality of life and business impacts to the district as popular as it is. And so the opportunity here was to rethink all that, how the streets work, how transportation works, how the public space works, and to really set a framework and a vision for transforming Soho into a low traffic neighborhood. And we've been very lucky to have a client here that is visionary, that actually sees this as being possible, sees the, the vision as being really important to the work that they want to do as a small organization. There, there are three people plus a clean and safe team who's out there daily picking up the garbage and removing graffiti, et cetera. So they're under-resourced to take on this bold ambition, but I think they can get there and this will hopefully create the impetus for that. And we had great partners at the city of New York. We had people from the, the borough president, Gail Brewer, she was in that video. She's been tremendously supportive of this initiative. The Department of Transportation has been very supportive of this initiative. It's really going to fall on them to take some of the, the big next steps, but I think we've set the table pretty well for it. I pulled this photo up. Is this also from that project? That is that project. From the hours of typically one to five or six o'clock on weekends, this is the scene that you'd have on Prince Street, Broadway even busier. And you can see that before this project was installed, or when this project is not in place, all those people are on those tiny sidewalks left and right. And here in New York, we have a lot of construction all the time and scaffolding and old buildings that are being you know, rehabilitated. So that pinches the space even more. So you can see this street is already oversubscribed. And as I you know, have mentioned over social media in the last couple of weeks, we counted in just one three-hour period, we counted 9,000 people moving through this space. 9,000. And on a whole day, this street averages 4,500 people driving. The Broadway has seen 15,000 vehicles a day, many, many more times in terms of people walking. So it's obvious, right? It's obvious what needs to be done. This was not a, this demonstration project is not a technically challenging one. We weren't concerned about people not showing up and using it. This is probably the easiest place to just lay out a little bit of color and some tables and chairs and have them instantly used. It's been really great to get that response again from the community saying we, we want this is really needed. Fantastic. For the benefit of those folks who are only listening in, but even for those of us who have this video visual, can you walk us through the different elements? I think it's fairly self-evident, but maybe there's some things that I'm just missing in, in looking at this shot. We had a number of constraints with this project. So the reason why this is now easier to do than ever in New York City is because of the pandemic. We can get, apply and receive an open streets designation from the New York City Department of Transportation pretty easily. We had to find the line of best fit between what they're trying to achieve, which is consistency and impact over time of the program with the clients, the bid, their resources, right? They're, again, they're three people. We were not able to paint this street at this time. We weren't able to make more interim changes yet. And so with that designation of the open street, they gave it to us for, at a minimum. They said, you could, the fewest times you can do this is four times in a row on a weekend. And so we picked that just because of the lack of resources to manage and steward this space. We need to put those resources into play, which I can get to that later, will be done, but not yet. And then so all those materials had to be 100% reversible, roll it up, pack it away. In fact, we're storing it. I won't tell you exactly where these materials are stored, but in a very clever location on street, just not to give it away. But there's a very clever place where approximate to the site, we have this stuff stored and then we can roll it out and set it up. And so you've got your blue turf circles. The blue is a color that we use throughout the actual vision plan. And it's the color of the bids. So we want that kind of a visual consistency. You'll see the cones that were 
you know, intending to separate the, the high levels of, of cycling traffic that come through this corridor. At peak hour, that doesn't happen, as you can see in this image. But I would say that largely cyclists have been really amenable to the change and have, you know, behaved. And we've you know, witnessed a couple of people yelling at pedestrians. But for the most part, it reads as a public space. It makes sense why it's there. And people cycling tend to slow down and just take it as the space is, right? But those cones are meant to indicate, look, there will be people cycling through here and create a little bit of a permeable barrier. The tables and chairs are obviously what you see there and the umbrellas. We really don't need umbrellas on this street. It actually doesn't get a lot of direct sunlight, but we really wanted a linear vertical visual pop, right, down the street. So as you walk through the intersection on the west or the east, you can look down the street and kind of see that, that line, that horizontality of the color, which offsets from the blue really nicely. And then we want some more fun elements to draw in kids and families to use the street, literally sit on the street, sit on the circles and use those uh, cushy yellow and um, orange seats, which are lightweight. I found out this weekend when my son was with me that you can flip them over. They make really great drums. Kids have seen this space and know exactly what to do with it. They're the ones who start to jump from circle to circle or slalom between them, making up games. They know how to jump on top of or stand or roll, like they can roll their bellies over back and forth on those orange and yellow cushion seats. So it's really nice. It's flexible. It's lightweight. It's fun and colorful. It's low cost. So it's been really quite easy. And I'd say the things you don't see in the image is that we have created barricades at either end of the street that are your typical metal French barricade. And we then wrap those in sort of a mesh liner that is also branded with the circles in the blue and named the project as being Little Prince Plaza. So that is meant to reinforce that this is a public space, that you can come in and use it the way that you see fit and use that same materiality to create a large screen over the scaffolding. It's hard to see in this image from this vantage point, but there's that ugly scaffolding there. And so we dropped in a very large screen to give the plaza a backdrop and hide some of the aesthetic challenges that come with the scaffolding itself. So those are the main components. Pretty simple. It takes about an hour to set up and about a half hour to break down. Wow. Very fun. <laughs> and I, 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 the, when I saw the video uh, of it the first time, I was just like, all right, Mike and I definitely got to talk about this. There's no doubt. <laughs> I'm very pleased with it. It's, it's a moment in time, I'd say, in the last 18 months, really, since we talked last, where you know, we've gone from doing projects here and there in New York City, largely been working all over for more than a decade, to really being able to align both personal things like starting a family and then with the pandemic, being able to help organizations and collaborators here in the city pivot their streets and public spaces. And so it's been really um, exciting for me. It's been really edifying and it's, it's challenging work in New York with all the different layers of bureaucracy, but so much of that has been cut and reduced and people's minds open to the kinds of things that you know we like to do in terms of delivering change and doing that quickly. So it's been quite exciting. And Yeah. When you look at, not just in New York, but also in some of the other cities that, that you're working with, are you seeing that this is becoming easier to have these discussions? It is, absolutely. From when we started doing this work in earnest eight or nine years ago, at that point, there were no RFPs calling for tactical urbanism, right? There was very few examples of communities doing this work with permission, with support, with staff from staff resources from cities. And now it's everywhere. Every every corner of the globe, the communities doing this type of work where they're figuring out how to get things going faster and then 
putting the measures in place to be able to evaluate and pivot and then invest in, in future change. And that's, that's really exciting. The city, not the city, sorry, the country of New Zealand has a program called Innovating Streets Program, which comes from the National Transport Agency called Waka Kotahi. Incredibly ambitious work. They, in one year, funded 70 plus projects around the country to make all sorts of changes to streets and public spaces. What's fascinating is that, that program was in place before the pandemic or was about to be announced and launched before the pandemic, so really early 2020. And then the pandemic happened and they quickly pivoted the program and the reason behind the program to support the need for physical distancing on our streets and in our public spaces, which is amazing and exactly the point is to be able to be that flexible to think of this as a tool that can respond to something as terrible as a pandemic in, in bad times, but also in good times be a way to accelerate the change that cities need to, need to undertake to offset climate change, to be more inclusive, to be safer and active. So yeah, it's been incredible in the last um, less than a decade to see that shift go from nobody asking for this work and us trying to beat that drum as loudly as we could to just being too busy servicing the work that we're doing now. So it's, it's great. Fantastic. Yeah. And I want to pull up another image here that that you shared with me. I get get a sense that this is a little bit about what you're talking about in being able to codify and have some tools available. And I guess that's right in the title there, materials and, and tools and equipment library. Talk a little bit about this program, because I, I get the sense that this is exactly what you're alluding to. Exactly, John. So this is a very new project. We also worked on this over the course of 2021, and this was just released last week with the Office of Planning in Washington, D.C., and funded by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, which is the MPO for the Washington metropolitan area. It was a resource that is really seen as the next important step for public space in Washington, D.C., they have done a lot of work around public life. They've worked a lot with Gail and others to study public life, to bring activation to public spaces, I'd say really over the last seven or eight years. And we've done a little bit of that work with them as well, but it really became a need to better support local neighborhood groups and residents at the very small scale of the block, right? Just being able to provide the actual materials, the actual tools to move on projects in public space. And so we defined the kind of typology with them on the kinds of public spaces. We went through a lot of the different types of resources and the equipment and tools that are needed for community members to do this work and really are trying to empower small groups rather than bids know how to do this work and larger advocacy organizations know how to do this work. So this is useful for them, but really this is for, for neighborhood residents and block associations and under-resourced nonprofits and others who are doing good community work to get access to things that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So there's a very strong sort of equity component to this project. And so the idea is that it lives now as a sort of digital library and resource, but the next step is to, to maybe even partner with the DC uh, public library system to start to embed these tools, materials, and equipment at libraries themselves, or maybe at community rec centers where anybody could check out the materials and go use them and then bring them back. And that's the next step and what's what we're envisioning as part of this, this program. Fantastic. And I, I gave a quick little snapshot of what the next thing I was going to ask you about was it, it looks like you're helping with additional active transportation plans and, and other types of programs and initiatives like that. Yeah. And New Haven's been interesting. I'd say it's probably one of the only projects that we had 
here at the firm that really got put on pause for quite some time with the pandemic. We actually started this work as a first phase back in 2019. And this is working with a, a CDC grant. So coming from the federal government that got uh, distributed to a nonprofit called CARE, which is really a, a healthcare organization and service providing organization in New Haven that works in the, what's been identified as the six most vulnerable neighborhoods around public health outcomes. And so they have, they're the recipient of this grant. And so we've been working with them as well as the city of New Haven, who also threw in a lot of resources into this effort to create the city's first citywide active transportation plan. And we started, like I mentioned a minute ago, we started in 2019, we did six different demonstration projects or not really demonstrations, but pilot projects. And the idea there was, let's go work with volunteers out of these different communities. These these six that are the most underserved with terms of safe streets and public space and public health outcomes. Let's get these projects in the ground quickly, just as a showcase for what can be done, as well as a kind of lead in to the larger work that we've done now in phase two, which is this actual transportation plan. And this is focused on cycling, walking, and making the bus experience better for all in the city. And so this has not yet been uh, formally released. We actually had a big public uh, meeting in a local park where we had great turnout a couple weeks ago. And we were unveiling all the concepts and uh, a lot of the ideas that are in the plan, but the plan itself will be released for public consumption as a draft uh, probably sometime in the next week or two. So we're not quite there yet, but we're close. New Haven's one of these places where it's an older New England city. It's got a grid of streets. It's already very walkable. You've got 3% cycling mode share, which is not as high as we want it to be, but for US, it's a pretty good starting point for US city, a high walking mode share. So you've got a lot of good things to work with in terms of the built environment that's there. And what really what this plan needs to do is get the political will behind it to start to really further invest in, in safer streets. And I think we'll get there uh, pretty quickly with the city with a very supportive mayor and staff. Yeah, good stuff. It, older cities that are scratching at trying to reclaim their streets. And uh, Victor was on last week and, and talked about, you know, Paris becoming Paris yet again. Yeah. <laughs> trying to reclaim the fact that uh, until the automobiles took over, it was a completely different scenario. It was a completely different situation. And the same with these older U.S. cities. We're seeing that same type of, of struggle of you know, whether you're talking Providence, Rhode Island or New Haven. It, it's a situation where it, it's trying to come go back to the future <laughs> go back to what the built environment used to be like or felt like in in many ways now you spent a fair amount of time in in france this this summer correct i did yes talk a wonderful. little bit about that because i i think that you were probably a little bit like a kid in the candy store when you were in certain parts of, of the country given the fact that paris is really doubling down on making big changes. I was there in 2015 documenting their very first car-free streets day. And right. I know a lot has changed since then. Yeah, no, it's, it's such a phenomenal place. And you know, it's not just Paris that's doing this work in, in France. You know, as a couple other examples, we were on an island just off the, the coast, the, the west coast of France this summer. And they, it's an island where most of the landscape is salt, farming actually. So they have all these irrigated saltwater pools that they create salt out of, right? They harvest salt. And so these massive white mounds of salt and these pools throughout the whole center of this island. And there's these villages that kind of ring the outside of these wonderful beaches. And the entirety of the 
island is linked together with the cycle paths. So you can get everywhere on a bike from these villages and from beach to beach and town to town. It's really, it's really quite amazing. So you know, there's things like that you find in, in France or many other European contexts that really haven't been stitched together in the way that, the, that we do it here in the U.S. yet, at least not at the scale that you see it there. But I was so impressed with Bordeaux and the work that's been done there, the public spaces, the, the transit, the car-free spaces, the plazas. And, and I learned while I was there that work has been done largely in the last decade, that Bordeaux is not a place that you would think of for walking, cycling, or transit, or, or public spaces, that it's really completely reinvented itself in the last um, decade. And so it's really inspiring to be in a place that is not Paris, right? This is a city of 250,000, so much more at that Providence, New Haven scale that in a decade's time could do what they've done. So seeing that as an example that's not that's not that context of Barcelona or London or Paris is really important, I think, in terms of learning about how smaller cities are doing this level of work. But of course, Paris has been, has been so exciting to me for a long time, but I think in the last couple of years, the work that they've accelerated in their squares and public spaces, they've turned whole large intersections and auto-dominated roundabouts into squares, like literal car-free squares. They've spent millions of dollars investing in that. They've got all the cars kicked out of the, the highways along the Seine. They're reducing the speed limits. They're about to remove 70,000 on-street parking spaces to free up even more space. They are already known for their cafe and street life, but now they've been doing a lot more of that in the curb lane as part of the pandemic. And then the Corona Pistes, which are their, their bikeway network, they had 50 kilometers of bike lanes that they to fill in gaps in the network as, as part of their response to the pandemic. And I'd say the signature street there, Rue de Rivoli, which is really the one of the major east-west streets that goes right along the Seine. It's right by the Louvre. So huge visibility, huge amount of foot traffic, huge amount of car traffic. They used to have 29,000 cars a day on the street. And they've completely inverted the relationship of mobility and human beings on that corridor. So instead of having multiple lanes for buses and trucks and cars to share and a little slice of the street for pedestrians and cycling, they've inverted that so that there's only one little narrow single lane for buses and taxis. And then the whole rest of the street is basically a two-way bike lane and pedestrian space. And they now are seeing over 13,000 cyclists a day on that corridor where there used to be 29,000 cars. And that number just keeps on, on growing. And I think when I talked about the three different kind of responses and where we are in this moment with the pandemic, they're on the side where you can see on the same street, the yellow markings and the yellow delineators and signage that they use for their Corona piece, their temporary bike lanes. On the same street, you can see them maintaining that for construction, but then the construction happening right next to it where the sidewalks are torn up and the permanent protected bike lanes are already being made on these corridors where they had infilled with this temporary network. And so they're transitioning that system already a year into their 18 months into that program. So it's, it's happening there at such a scale and speed that I know it makes a lot of residents uncomfortable. <laughs> we go to France a lot because my wife is French and her father lives in Paris. He's somebody who has a very nuanced opinion about all these things, but we have lots of fun conversations and debates about the impact and, and what's good and what's not in terms of the street design. But the point is they're, they're doing it, right? They're, they're ready, for getting themselves more ready for the climate emergency. And we need to see more big cities out there and small cities doing that work. Yeah, I had heard that, that Bordeaux was 
heading in that direction and really striving to to make a difference. It's good to hear that that it, it seems like it accelerated even during the pandemic. I've had a chance to make it to Strasbourg, and so I, they, of course, are a little bit influenced because of their proximity to Germany and to the Netherlands. But Bordeaux was a little bit of a reach to try to make it uh, to when I was there in 2015. So it's good. Next to, time. Next time. Yeah. Next next time for sure. Now, do you know what they did to really help activate the the infrastructure or was it just build it and and the pent-up demand was really there i think it's a number of things I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the history of what's transpired there over the last decade or so but i was told one of the very first steps was to clean the facades of the buildings bordeaux has i think historically in the country been known as a little paris because a lot of the architecture is very similar and they have some kind of key major boulevards that are basically Paris, but two or three stories shorter in height. <laughs> so hence mini Paris. And all those facades were dirty. They were covered in soot and they were covered in air pollution and particles and all the things that come out of tailpipes. And so there was a mayor, and I'm sure a majority of, of council supportive of just like really rethinking, look, we're not going to attract people here. I can attract investment if the buildings look dingy. We are dominated by cars and it's ruining the architecture of our city. And so they cleaned all the facades and spent a lot of resources on that and unveiled this gleaming white city that people hadn't seen for decades. And then as part of that work, started to invest in a tram network to interconnect major destinations around the, the, the city and then investing in the public spaces. So they have really incredible old medieval center and many of those streets are either shared space or they're, or they're car free. And all the plazas and squares are enlivened by great cafes and retail and restaurants, everything being human scale and really just a lovely place to walk from square to square. And then on their riverfront, they've invested tremendously on making this very long linear public space that includes one of the coolest fountains that I've ever seen, which is a very long, big rectangle right at the center of the city on the waterfront. And there's this very like thin you know, layer of water. And then every 15 minutes or so, it the water runs again, like it slowly drains, and then it runs again. And so it's something where like a kid, my son, Luca, who at the time was six months old, you can have him just sit there in the summer in the, in the fountain. And it's perfectly appropriate for him. But there's a whimsical nature to the space and a beauty to the space that someone who's an urban design aesthete like myself can really take pleasure in just taking it all in. And it just attracts a huge diversity of people from around the city to go to that space, particularly on, on warm days, which was quite warm while we were there. But that thin layer of water as well reflects the historic architecture across the street. It's just, it's this really incredible linear space that we don't see a lot of waterfronts like that in the United States, particularly those that have emerged in the last um, decade as they've really transitioned from industrial use on the river to, to public realm, public space. What a great point though, too, of talking about do the basic things first, clean the soot off of the buildings you know, from probably decades worth of automobile exhaust and other types of smoke that is polluting the city. And so start with the basics, give the city a good cleaning before moving forward. Talk a little bit about the design of the cycle network that is going in place. What I'm looking for here is 
Are they following the Dutch model of the protected and separated? And then when there is shared space, we're looking at extremely low motor vehicle speeds. Are you talking about Bordeaux or Paris? or just uh, Bordeaux, yeah. I was thinking yeah. more of the smaller example. When I was in Paris, they were already started with the, the protected infrastructure and, and some of the separated infrastructure. And I'm assuming that just got accelerated at, at even grander scale. Yeah, I can touch upon Paris in a minute, but Bordeaux has so many tiny streets in the city center that you don't see a lot of protected infrastructure because it's not needed. You've got a lot of these streets that are shared space. They're maybe 10 feet wide at most. No parking, right, in the city center. Everything's basically off street. So you get walking space, sidewalk space, and then you've got either a very low curb or no curb at all. So cycling happens very naturally in those environments. I think what I'd heard from a few locals is that there's still some concern about speed of cyclists in that environment. But for the most part, that city center is shared in that manner. And then as you get a little bit further out, you're getting along the, the, the riverfront, for example, there's a two-way network that's emerged along the corridor, which is pretty common along waterfronts, right? It's kind of an unbroken space in terms of intersections. So the concerns you have with two-way facilities doesn't really exist in that context. And it links all the way down to a major new bridge which crosses over to the other side of the river and a system that is basically like a riverfront trail that brings people on, you know, back to one of the city's main bridges the other direction. So they've got this nice center loop along the riverfront. It actually reminds me a little bit of what you're in, in your city in Austin, where they've really done a good job connecting the waterfront with paths. But then from there, it's a bit of a mix. You can see they've got some of the sharing of lanes, which doesn't really work very well. You've got some protected network, that's one way, so directional, right, with the, the direction of, of travel for the most part where those facilities exist. And then you've got a lot of like streets that are that are major. They don't have that infrastructure yet. So I think the cycling has been very popular and common in the core, but I think they've got work to do as they build out that network further to the, the edges of the city. And then since we brought it up uh, on Paris, the transformation, <laughs> when I was there in 2015, I felt like the protected infrastructure was just okay. Having just been to, to spent a few days in Strasbourg, it, it was certainly nowhere near as advanced in terms of the comfort and the, the level of safety that you felt on the streets. But quite honestly, mostly it was just the streets and the boulevards where there were a lot of cars that was the biggest challenge. Yeah, Paris, as I've been explaining, so when I was there, I got to go on this really amazing three-hour bike tour to see all these changes with a colleague who works for what would be the equivalent of RPA. Right? It's a regional think tank that does work around the whole Paris metropolitan area, so not just the core city. And he's been a part of these changes for uh, quite some time. He had all this institutional knowledge, which was great, and he walked me through and cycled me through three different generations of bikeways in the city. And a lot of it started with sharing bus lanes with and bike lanes. So basically that space was curbed and protected from moving cars. But as a cyclist, you were you know, still meant to share that with buses, which is not super comfortable. Those buses are running with any frequency. And then the sec next generation really moved to being on the sidewalk and carving space away from the sidewalk, which I think was also not ideal because not having any differentiation in, in height or enough differentiation of material. You just had a lot of conflicts that were emerging with pedestrians and the lanes themselves are quite narrow and not meant to handle the volume of cycling that's happening there now, which is again, been something that's completely exploded 
over the last 18 months. And so those lanes feel very uncomfortable now because they're not wide enough and you're squeezing a lot of things into a limited amount of real estate. Their third generation is directional for the most part. They are most often separated by some sort of curbing or barrier element that makes it much more clear that space is for cycling and the lanes themselves are wider. I think there's concern that they're still not wide enough, but they're certainly wider than that second generation. And so being able to ride that and see the difference was key. You understanding how those facilities get resolved as they move through squares and, and plazas, they basically, they mostly drop away and you're meant to share that space and make sure that pedestrians have priority, at least that's the, the, the thinking or that's the hope. And then you're still definitely seeing those challenges, John, at the intersections where all three generations come into these major junctions and they don't do a whole lot to protect cyclists at the intersection. There's not enough splitting of the signals in terms of phasing for cyclists and pedestrians, and there's no protected intersection. Turning movements are a challenge and issue. And you know where those major boulevards cross each other, they're very large intersections. So you still very much feel exposed and you very much feel like you are impinging on pedestrian space at the intersections themselves. So there's still a lot of work to be done there, but they certainly have improved the design over the last decade pretty tremendously. Yeah. And I would say, uh, yeah, not wide enough. Based on some of the videos that I'm seeing out of Paris right now, uh, it's wow. It's amazing how quickly the numbers have come. So I hope that seeing that number of people riding bikes out there, that'll really help them to try to figure out those intersections really fast. Yeah, I think that will be, that's definitely the, the hope and goal, I think, of advocates and you know planners and whatnot. But at the trajectory they're going, I was more enamored with the Rue de Rivoli example, which was literally just give everyone the space, like the whole street, and then carve off a small segment for the cars. So there's a car lane, like there's a bike lane today on most of the American streets, like that little sliver, and let them deal with that issue and let the, the cyclists have, the pedestrians have more free reign of a much larger percentage of the street. If you do it that way, then you don't need as many issues, investments and changes in infrastructure at the intersections. You don't need as much physical protection. It just works a lot better and more smoothly in a lot of ways. So I'm keen to see cities try that strategy here in North America, like literally just take a couple east, west, north, south quarters, run through a city and just do it on one street, do it on one quarter or two quarters and feed into that system where you could have a total bike and pedestrian priority street that is you know, a major avenue or thoroughfare. And, and you will see, I think, tremendous gains in riding if that were to be the case. Yeah, that's a good point. You're completely flipping the narrative here it, rather than just trying to create space for, for people who are not driving a motor vehicle. You're just saying, no, no, we're flipping this around. We're going to do what we can to maybe accommodate you if you happen to show up in a motor vehicle. But the prioritization is definitely going to be people walking and biking. Yeah, it's the least expensive way to do it as well in terms of just thinking about budget. And I know that probably sounds radical to most Americans or North Americans, but if you think about almost every single street being not just accessible, but dominated by cars, it seems like we could start with a few different key corridors and connections where the cars are the guests and we totally invert that relationship. So I'm fascinated by that opportunity and that idea and that way to approach it. And it takes this notion of a bike lane and blows it up. It just becomes a bike street. I think we've seen some of that in, in other European countries. They've, they've definitely played with that design typology, but it's hard to see that example in such a major car dominated corridor as the Rue de Rivoli once was, right? It's just so 
symbolic that, and it really just evaporated the traffic along the Seine, right along the, in the very center of the city. I forget the exact number, but they've seen a huge you know, reduction in uh, VMT and car trips in the city center in Paris. And they're still happening. You still see cars. It's not, it's definitely not like this total nirvana when you're there, but it's so much different now than it was a decade ago and so much different than it was 18 months ago in terms of the number of people using the streets on, on bike. Yes, the great law of, of traffic evaporation. If you build a welcoming places for people to walk and bike and take transit and it becomes a little bit, okay, let's be honest. If it becomes really a pain in the butt to, to drive, it, it's amazing how traffic just evaporates. It goes away. It disappears. Our entire Soho Public Realm Vision Plan is based on that single principle that we will pay divert away and eventually those numbers come down you know, a lot in conjunction, obviously, with, with a lot of other policies and tools that are at our disposal. But we can build these low traffic environments if we want to, but we have to believe in that principle. Yeah. Looking forward into the rest of uh, 2021 and into 2022, what are you excited about? Um, I'm excited, I think, for the, the work that's been done in the last 18 months to really start to normalize itself. And I think of it broader, you know, it's much more broader than just mobility, right? We've talked a lot about public spaces, but we haven't talked a lot about parks. I think parks have been such an underappreciated asset in the American community for so long. And uh, the pandemic shined a really bright light on park space. And I think here in New York City, our park system is very underinvested in, and we're seeing massive calls for investment in that system. So I just think seeing resources marshaled politically behind this need that's been there all along, uh, but now having a lot more political will, I hope, built to invest in parks, in public spaces, in transit, hopefully it's going to be there. And I know that's a really, it's really patchy in the US and where that's being accelerated and where it's not, but it certainly is something that I'm excited about and the opportunity that's out there with the work that we do with, with communities. So that's exciting. And I'd say that for us, we've got a lot of really exciting projects that are about to be implemented. We've worked on a lot of really exciting things in the last couple of years, but I'd just say, you know, stay tuned for a project in Culver City, which will be implemented before the year is out. Major corridor overhaul and, and proposed to be one of three major corridor overhauls that put a lot of the principles we've been talking about today into practice. So that's going to be one that's fun to watch and fun to see how that progresses. And I'm excited about our team. We've built a really great team, history plans. It's taken a decade to get the work at the scale and the level of resources that we have now with our team and, and, and teaming. And that's been really edifying. And we've got just a great group here and I love working with them every day and just want to continue finding ways to, for all of us to make an impact. That's what, we, that's what we're all about. Now, when you, you say Culver City as in the Los Angeles area? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's exciting. It is. Yeah. Starting, let's see, the second week, I believe, in November, we'll be out there, almost our full team, installing um, a corridor redesign for cycling, for, for bus transit, and very large curb extensions and, and murals that our team has designed for the street. So it's bringing all the things together that we work on oftentimes individually. Sometimes we're doing intersection redesigns and we're working on pedestrian space, or sometimes we're working on the bike network piece. Sometimes we're working on making the bus work better and be more comfortable. But this project has all those components in one and very sort of supportive political environment to to try these things. So it was born from the pandemic in a lot of ways, but also I think is going to far outlast the sort of initial impetus for the work. And we're, we're almost there. Get this thing installed. So we're excited. 
All right, let's uh, let's pull up one last photo and we'll end where we started, which was on some visuals of the plazas that uh, that you've been working with. So I think that this is a this is another a different project and a different scene. So I'll pull this up and I'll have you walk us through what's going on here. So this is a neat overhead that, that's happening here. Tell us about this one. Sure. So this is called Nomad Piazza. And this is another project here in New York City, also on Broadway, just further north from the Soho project. And this is between 25th and 27th Street. And the client here and collaborator was the Flatiron uh, Business Improvement District. So they're called the Flatiron Partnership. And they oversee all the, the public spaces and streets in their district, which recently has doubled in size. And this was an opportunity that kind of came up um, very quickly as a collaboration. And the bid had been working, I believe, in a um, pro bono way with AIA, uh, so the American Institute of Architects chapter here in New York City, to develop some ideas and concepts for what's been called Nomad Piazza. And these two blocks have been open for dining and for public space as an open street for the last year or more, I should say, over a year. You had all the old striping on the street, still had cars parking on the street. It didn't feel like a plaza and the the Flatiron Partnership has invested and created some really wonderful spaces in around Madison Square that's completely transformed street space into public space, largely to be car free, so to be shared space over the last 10 years. And this is like the next, this is the next project to do exactly that. And they wanted to test it out for a month. So this is what we call a seasonal street in New York City. It's when you can do this for a season and observe how it works and then take those learnings and then go to the next level. And I think that's really the goal here with the piazzas to see the feedback that it gets, to see how it works for businesses, for operations, for pedestrians, how the cyclists share the space. And the bid's been learning a lot, but largely from what I've heard, it's been a tremendous success. So we, we worked with them to help design what you see there, just the pattern, the paint, and then help them execute the project. And so we started talking about this project at the end of August, and then we installed it at the end of September. So it moved within a month. We went from, hey, would you like to help with this project to us all out there with the blue paint on our shoes, getting this, this one done. It's been a very uh, exciting project for us, right on, right on Broadway, right in the, the heart of New York City. I, I had to laugh at the motorcycle that's in this photo. <laughs> right. That's actually, I think it's, a, it's an electric delivery bike. And so you see a lot of those. Yeah, you see a lot of those. And that's actually been one of the the challenges with this project is that as it closed more and more of the, the Broadway to through traffic, it gets a lot of not just southbound cycling, which is there's a you know protected bike lane all along Broadway through the you know, through this part of the city, but now it's getting a lot of northbound two-way cycling traffic. So there's a very strong desire line because of the way that Broadway works and the way the surrounding bike network works to have those northbound movements. And so I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this is that the cycling has to be better accommodated with those two-way movements. And to do that will be a little bit complicated because the, the blocks are so short, north-south in this part of Manhattan. So you get a lot of intersections. And so really thinking through how to do that effectively on Broadway and not just here in Flatiron, but you know, further north through Herald Square, up to Times Square, up to you know, Columbus Circle, Central Park. Like there's a real, you know, down to Union Square, there's just a real connection that can be made there. And, and there's a huge amount of foot traffic, right? Integrate cycling at high rates safely with space that's in very high demand for pedestrians. So it's going to be the coming, I think, conversation and, and, and challenge in terms of redesigning this more permanently. Right. Any final thoughts that you want to make sure to leave the audience with? Jeez, John, I don't know. That's a, 
<laughs> I shared a lot of thoughts already. What are you excited about in the coming uh, year with the work that you're doing and advocating for? What are you seeing out there? You talked to all of these people who are doing great things around the country and the world. So what are you seeing? I think it's really a magnification of some of the things that we've just been talking about. And as well as one of the things that Victor had mentioned last week in the episode was the fact that some smaller incremental things are starting to to take hold and, and really that opportunity to do things quickly. So I think it's a lot of what we talked about 18 months ago of can you do it lighter, quicker, cheaper? Can you try to take down some of the barriers that are in place within cities so that there can be some flexibility, there can be some trialing, there can be some piloting. But then at the same time, I know that we need to move quickly on some big initiatives. And so I'm very excited to see the Parises of the world and the Barcelonas of the world that are making big, huge, bold steps as well. So it's that combination of the, the smaller stuff that's happening that is helping to create, I think, some momentum. And then at the same time, seeing some bold leadership globally that is taking place. And yeah, I'm excited at the direction that we're heading, but I feel that sense of urgency that we need to move forward with some big results. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly it. And where there needs to be a lot of work. Yes, making the small things and the quick things easier to do still, there's still a lot of work to be done there. And of course, we've, we focus on that for a decade plus now. But what I'm seeing, and I've seen this in the last couple of years, is there needs to be a much more intentional pipeline that's established, a process that's established that looks at those incremental and temporary pilot projects and changes and backfills them with a process to make them permanent, creating the criteria, creating the budgets and the capital process to you know deliver transformation. We have literally no time to waste on these projects. We, the Superblock you know, proposal in Barcelona, that's, it's amazing. It's setting the bar, but I think Barcelonans, the politics there are such that they feel that urgency because it is urgent and we need more cities to feel that urgency and build the system to, to make sure we're connecting the dots between, yeah, that was a great temporary one block plaza. And we painted a couple times over 10 years. And now we're thinking about redoing it to, Hey, that was successful for nine months, in two years time. That's going to be completely rebuilt and will be car free space and further reducing emissions, creating more equity and, and access to open space and you know, creating a better environment for business, right? Like we're not there yet. Many cities really struggle with that pipeline and making that connection. And I think that's where a lot of work has to be done next. So yeah, I guess you asked for some parting thoughts that those are them. Good stuff. I love it, man. Hey, thank you so much, Mike, for joining me once again on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you. Thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 97 of the Active Towns podcast. I really hope you found this chat with Mike inspiring. I'm always amazed by the impressive projects and designs he and his fabulous team pull off and come up with. To learn more about his firm, Street Plans, and to access some of the fabulous visuals featured in this episode, be sure to check out the links in the show notes and, more importantly, over on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. Well, that's all for this week's episode, but first, it's time for my final weekly reminder and request to help me grow the culture of activity movement. Please consider making a donation to Active Towns, spreading the word, and subscribing. Thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. Until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>